Well, one of my favorite things about the Christmas season is the music. Now, my favorite secular tune, and I don't think there's even a close second, is the Christmas song written by Mel Torme, but perfected by Nat King Cole. Whenever I hear that song, I have to stop, I tell everyone to be quiet, and I turn the radio up or turn the music up, and I want to hear it, and I just want to hear the, the sounds that come out. Perfect. Now, a religious song that I feel similar emotions toward is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. The fourth verse of that song even references our passage that Harold just read today. O come, O branch of Jesse's stem, unto your own and rescue them. From depths of hell your people save and give them victory o'er the grave. See, we all have our favorite Christmas songs, whether it's secular or religious. But then we have songs that we just don't like. We have some songs that are polarizing to everybody. There's divide, like the Christmas shoes. Some of you really like that. Some of you hate it. I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. Some of you really don't like that one either. I think we can all agree that Madonna's version of Santa Baby is terrible. And we can probably all agree that most of Mariah Carey's Christmas music is not good either. Whatever the reason, whatever songs you don't like, whatever songs that make you cringe or turn off your radio, they may have good lyrics and a bad tune. They may have vice versa, or it just may be too sappy. And one of those that, that I don't know whether I love or hate is that song called Grown Up Christmas Wish. And I'm going to read it. I'm not going to sing it to you as... I'm not Chandler. I can't sing songs from the pulpit. He's got a much better voice than I do. Do you remember me? I sat upon your knee. I wrote to you with childhood fantasies. Well, I'm all grown up now and still need help somehow. I'm not a child, but my heart can still dream. So here's my lifelong wish, my grown-up Christmas list. Not for myself, but for a world in need. And then the chorus, no more lives torn apart, that wars would never start, and time would heal all hearts. And everyone would have a friend, and right would always win, and love would never end. This is my grown-up Christmas list. It's a bit of nostalgia here, and nostalgia that we've kind of made up, that the past is somehow better than it is today, and it's not a reality. We just mature. As kids, we just want more toys. We, we want packages under the tree and toys to play with. As teenagers, we just want money. But as adults, we want something different. We enjoy giving to others. We enjoy the look on others' face when they receive a gift. But even beyond that, if we had one wish for Christmas, wouldn't we want to, a, a world that's peaceful? A, a world that there is no more war? Where we see justice prevail? And I think about parts of the world that are in the midst of war, and I think that putting up Christmas lights and a Christmas tree is not unimportant, but it's not the most important thing for people. It's survival, family. And as cheesy as a song like that can be, deep down, I think it's what we all kind of want. We want to see a world that's not torn apart. We want to see a, a world where people are 
peaceful towards one another. We want to see a world where justice wins. And here's the good news for you. Really the good news for the entire world. That will happen. That day will come. This is what we just read in Isaiah chapter 11, that there is a day that the world will experience complete and total peace. There is a day where death will be no more. There is a day where there will be no more wars and famine and hurt. There will be a day. And it is coming. And this is what we see in Isaiah 11. This Morning, I want to continue our Advent series with a a passage that should cause us to look forward with anticipation, look forward with hope that that day will come. We see in verse 1, we see the character of the Messiah, specifically the humble beginnings of the Messiah that points us to this day. Listen, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse, from His roots, a brand, will bear fruit. So what is a stump? Well, a stump is a tree that has been chopped down. A tree that was fully alive, that had grown, that that may be a, a tall, tall tree, and for whatever reason, the tree gets chopped down, and all that's left is a stump in the ground. A stump, in a lot of ways, is not worth very much, It doesn't provide any shade. It it may be okay to sit on, but beyond that, there's not enough wood to do much with it. What do you do when you chop a tree down? You call someone to grind the stump out. Maybe it's worth sawdust, but beyond that, there's not much value found in a stump. Children will climb on it, but it is a reminder of what was once there A tree, a living, thriving tree is cut down and all that's left is remains. So what is Isaiah saying? Isaiah is saying that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. The kings of Israel at the time uh, were not very good. They were not great people. Their sin had in affected them, their good judgment. And Isaiah was showing that David's line is not great anymore. Wickedness had come to define the descendants of David, and God's justice had come down. And you could see the line of David had been cut. It it seems as if to us on the surface that it had been destroyed, that there was no more left. All that people could see of a tree that has been cut is a stump doesn't seem to have much worth but Isaiah says that a shoot will rise up from the stump David's line is not finished where everyone saw a dead tree that was no longer useful God in his sovereignty had a plan his plan was for a shoot a little stem coming up from the stump that would one day grow into the greatest and biggest and best tree that anyone has ever seen. See, we're not talking about botany, are we? 
I know nothing about botany. I don't even know what the word means. But we're not even talking about that. We're talking about the illustration that Isaiah is providing for us. Isaiah is making the point that what looks like death and defeat will bring forth life and victory. What seems like to be the end of all things will bring about salvation. It would be easy. This is kind of a theme running through Scripture. Why does God use this person or this illustration to further his plans? Why in the world does God use a stump to point to Jesus? It's a strange illustration, isn't it? See, if we wanted notoriety today, I ha- there's a couple things that we would do. We would get a following on social media. We would post pictures on Instagram. We would write articles or, or, or do something that draws attention to us. We would do anything we could to promote ourselves. But God often uses really strange means to accomplish his purposes. And he uses people who we would never use. Why? Oh, why David? I mean, ultimately, David, not from famous or rich family. He's not even the, the best of his brothers in terms of physical appearance. Why didn't God choose Saul, right? Why didn't God use him? Why did God use this little boy? Why did God use Moses to lead his entire nation of people? Moses even said he wasn't a good speaker. And as we all know that to rally the troops, you've got to have someone who can give a good speech, a good motivational speech to get people to go out and follow. And Moses couldn't do it. Why did Jesus choose to use 12 men who weren't anything notable to accomplish his purpose of spreading the message of the gospel? This is the way that God often operates. He chooses to use means that are very different from the ways that we would do it. These are strange methods, but we see that they work. Why? Not the methods. A stump is a stump. Right? There, there's nothing special in a stump. But what God promises to raise up through that stump. God is using this through Isaiah to illustrate a bigger picture. A picture that the line is no longer dead. That there is a shoot that will rise up out of that stump. And that shoot will save God's people from their sin. So we've seen the humble beginnings of the Messiah coming out of a stump. And then in verses 2 and 3, we see his power. So we go from humble beginnings to his power, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. What seemed like a lost cause, again a stump, is actually full of life. Look at the the list of seven attributes in verse 2. These are attributes of the Messiah, things that he will be. Seven, by the way, without getting too big into numerology and all this other stuff that people really dive into. Seven is the number of completion. It's also repeated in Revelation chapter 1. So the list is kind of important. These are characteristics of the Messiah that would come. That he has the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, 
the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. See, we should all, every leader, aspire to have these things. Every Christian should aspire to have all these things, knowing full well that we can't and we don't. In other words, the Messiah is full of power. The one who is to come is the one that perfectly exemplifies this list of characteristics. The Messiah is full of power, but the Messiah is also full of justice. Look at verses 3 through 5. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of this earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The kings leading up to this point, particularly Ahaz, in the Davidic line, failed to live up to their task. Every man had flaw and sins, and because of those sins, it seeped into decision-making. And, and, and we know this from our own lives. One sin often leads to another, which leads to another, which leads to another. And so when bad decisions are made, it often creates a domino effect. And over time, these leaders, these kings, the wickedness came out. Their actions prove this. Now, say, why is this important? Why, why do we need to hear about the wickedness of the leaders of the day to understand Jesus? Let me give you this illustration. A few years ago, a scandal erupted in higher education um, where super wealthy people were bribing their way into getting their children into prestigious universities. The, these wealthy families had already had the advantage over most people. They had private schools, private tutoring, ACT and SAT help. They, they could donate to the university in order to give their children a, a leg up. They played travel sports. They had uh, money enough to have more free time to volunteer and to serve in various ways to pad their application. These show that the wealthiest of the wealthy already have the advantages but all that's perfectly legal. And what happened in 2019 was not legal. It was uncovered over seven years. 33 parents of college applicants gave a combined $25 million to one man. See, a, a poor kid with great, good grades and high standardized tests can get into a good school even against the odds, but when parents are able to bribe college coaches to put their children on an athletic team when they don't have the ability to do that, the kid from a poor family doesn't stand a chance. Take away the illegal aspects of that, the system is still stacked in favor of those with the means to work the system. Those on the outside just don't have a chance. We even see this played out outside of academia. We see this in prison sentences, that often the most wealthy people have the ability to pay bail and to pay for high-powered attorneys to get themselves out of the jams that poor people can't get themselves out of. And this should honestly, all of these things should strike a nerve with us. 
If you watched the news reports from a few years ago and you saw these, these celebrities and super wealthy people paying off college coaches and paying for people to take their children's SATs for them, you should have been mad. That should strike a nerve with every one of us because it's injustice, it's not fair, it's not right. Now, why am I saying this? Because this is just one example of injustice that we see in the world every single day that should bother us and it should tell us that this isn't right, this is not the way that it should be. That injustice that this abuse of others, all of that is not what it should be. But then in verses 3 through 5, we see a promise that the Messiah will fix this. That feeling you get when you see this, this kind of stuff happening, that's going to go away. That's going to be fixed this is something that all Christians look forward to. We see justice played out in the Old Testament prophets over and over and over again. That the Messiah will come to restore justice to all creation. And as Christians, we look forward to that day with bated breath. That day when there will be no more sin and no more effects of sin. But the Messiah will not only bring justice, he will bring Peace. This is what we see in verses 6 through 9. Now I want you to see this. These verses, this passage, so much of what we see in the prophets and even going all the way to Revelation, what we're seeing the Messiah promised to do is restoring creation back to the Garden of Eden. It's a circling back to the original creation. Jesus came to us 2,000 years ago, and we don't see this happening right now, so what do we do? This is where we need to understand that already not yet idea that we're already saved, already forgiven of our sins, already promised a future, but we're not yet perfected. We have not yet been given those things that we know are coming. We're not in our eternal state yet. We're still surrounded by sin and sickness. We struggle with sin ourselves. And this promised future has just not yet come. So what do we do? We await the coming Messiah. We await the promises to be fulfilled. See, you may be thinking this too. Wait. You're preaching from Isaiah 11, but the way you're approaching it does not seem like an Advent sermon. It does not seem like a, a Christmas sermon because what you're talking about, Ryan, is not the baby in the manger. You're talking about the king that's coming back. So why preach this second coming at Advent? Because the first coming, when Jesus came to us as a baby in a manger, points to the second. In the story of Jesus, if the story of Jesus and the world stopped at the resurrection, we'd be perpetually stuck where we are right now. There is no second coming without the first. One Advent devotional put it this way, quote, Advent reminds us of the glorious rest given through Jesus' first coming and anticipates the full restoration that will accompany his return. In this time of tension between the, not, or between the now and not yet, 
God calls us to be marked by his kingdom grace, a people who pursue justice for the oppressed and spread the knowledge of Christ in our communities. It is through this knowledge that weary sinners receive the glorious rest of Christ's kingdom. I'm reminded of the song, Joy to the World, which is a, a staple of our Christmas songs. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room in heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. And then the third and fourth verse. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And then the final verse. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love, not love. Do you know that this song is not talking about a baby in a manger? This song is talking about when Jesus splits the sky wide open and comes down to establish his kingdom forever and ever. And it's perfectly fine for us to sing about it at Christmas. There are many songs that any song about Jesus we can sing about Christmas because it always, always points to what Jesus did for us and what Jesus will continue to do and what he will one day do for us. The song, Joy to the World, was written with Psalm 98 in mind. And it says what Jesus will do, ridding the world of sin and sorrow and ruling with truth and grace. And they don't happen with a baby stuck in a manger. Neither does what we see in verses 6 through 9 of our text. Listen, listen to this, the picture of this happening. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard with the goat, the calf and the lion, the cow and the bear, and the lion will eat straw and a little child shall lead them. There's no more need. There's no more need to talk about death. There's no more need to talk about fear. Where do we know this? Where, where in the Bible do we see this kind of thing happening? It begins in the garden where Adam and Eve walked with the animals and there was no lion attacks. Why? No sin. There wasn't even need to eat an animal. Why? No sin, no death. And this passage in Isaiah says that garden, the utopian experience that, that, that Adam and Eve had where they, was, they didn't need anything, there was nothing that they needed that they couldn't have, that day will come. That moment is waiting. Every inch of nature will be transformed back to the way that God created it all in the first place. Romans 8 uh, verses 19 through 22, Paul writes this, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. All those feelings that we have, the thoughts that we have, when we see something wrong that goes unpunished, 
that's a result of the fall. That, that all of those things are a result of sin. And since the fall of man, nothing has worked as it should. Lambs, goats, and cows, to use Isaiah's imagery, are frightened of wolves, leopards, and lions. Why? Wolves, leopards, and lions like to eat lambs, goats, and cows. They're good for food. There is a fear that the smaller, weaker animals have from those larger predators. Why are we scared of wolves? And lions. Because we also do not want to be eaten. We're frightened of those things. But verse 6 says, not a lion tamer, but a child will lead those animals. Would any good parent, we've seen those videos of kids that drop into the gorilla den. No good parent would toss their child in there. No good parent would let their child walk around lions. But Isaiah says that it will happen. A child will walk amongst large animals and be perfectly safe. There is no more fear when the Messiah comes again. This is a reversal of what we see in Genesis chapter 9. After the flood, God told Noah to be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth. And then he says this, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. We're scared of predators because we don't want to be eaten. Why are animals scared of us? For the exact same reason. Genesis 9 is established after the introduction of sin into the world. Isaiah 11 reorients everything so that creation returns to its original design. If you ever read Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and wish, man, I wish I could experience the Garden of Eden, believe me, you will. Except this time it'll be so much better. Because rather than a tree that we're not allowed to, to eat from, there will be a throne and Jesus will sit in that throne and reign and rule forever and ever. This is our hope. This is appealing, isn't it? A world without sin, a world without suffering, where shame and failure don't exist, where all bad things are gone. This is what the Messiah provides. Look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the spread of the gospel throughout the world. It's vital to Paul's ministry. The most influential Christian that followed after Christ quotes it, this passage in Romans 15. It says, the nations will come. They'll be drawn to it. At the time that Isaiah wrote this, the Hebrews would have read this and they would have been under the mindset that salvation belonged to them. All of these promises throughout the Old Testament, we see this, salvation will come through the Jews. So naturally, most of those people would have said, well, salvation then belongs to us. And so they would have heard this taught 
And it seems like it. But Isaiah is saying that's not what's happening. Isaiah says that the Messiah, will, the shoot that comes out of the stump, will be a signal for the peoples. Of Jesus, the nations will inquire. This is an evangelistic promise. God has worked through the Hebrew people, but now his message is going to the world. It's going outside of the Jewish family, and it's spreading through every tribe, nation, and tongue. And we saw this last week in a big way. The message of God has spread throughout the world, and people are drawn to it. Isaiah 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. The world will hear of the good news. We see this in Isaiah. We see this well before that. But we see this happening in our passage today. The world will hear of the good news. And if you're not a Christian, if you're not a, a follower of Christ, I want you to know that this passage still has something to say to you too. It says that if you are not part of the family of God, Jesus will stand before you as the judge. In Matthew 25, Jesus says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The sheep, those who have repented of their sin, those who have put their trust and faith in Christ, they will experience life. And then they will experience the blessing that comes with it. The goats... Those who have re rejected the, the message of salvation, those who have denied Jesus as the Messiah, the only Savior, they will face the judgment of God. Jesus says that he will cast them into the eternal fire that is prepared for Satan and his demons. This is, is not something that is pleasant for us to think about, but we can't ignore them either. The Bible is clear that anyone who doesn't come to Christ in repentance and faith will face the fires of judgment. This is what Jesus says himself, and it's what the entire Bible points us to. There's no way to dance around this. There's no way to avoid this and still be faithful to what the Word says. You will stand before Jesus, and you will be forced to plead your case. And even with the strongest case that you can make, it's still not enough. Because your goodness and my goodness do not compare to the goodness of God. Some will naturally be opposed to this, and even in Christian circles, thinking that because God is good, he must forgive everyone. This is what many outside of the Christian faith would say. Those who believe in God, they would admit that there is a God, some higher power, don't know who that is, don't know what religion he's part of, uh, but, but I believe that God is good, and if God is good, then everyone will be saved, or, or God will never make anyone suffer. Yes, God is good, but God would cease to be good if he allowed evil to go unpunished. To let rebellion slide with a mere slap on the wrist would go against God's holiness and his character. In other words, in ignoring sin or not dealing with it properly would go against who God is. 
See, the gospel tells us that the Messiah came to judge the nations. He, he will come and bring justice to all creation. And that happens when evil is vanquished and evildoers get what they deserve. It sounds harsh and extreme. But it's what God must do. And if you're still wrestling with this, if you're still fighting with this, I understand but what would you want to happen to a murderer, an abuser, a dictator who killed millions? What would you say to the person who, who abuses people their whole lives, lives to be 85, and dies a quiet death? There is no earthly justice served there. That should make us angry that they didn't experience that. Here's what the gospel says. The gospel says that that person will. That that sin or those sins that that person committed will be dealt with. Whether it's God's wrath being poured out on them or whether it's God's wrath being poured out on Jesus for them. Either way, we see justice prevailing. What we see in Scripture is that the second coming of the Messiah will bring justice in one of these two forms. Either we pay it ourselves or Jesus pays it for us. The glorious gospel tells us that everyone who is found in Christ has already had their sins dealt with. And by putting our faith in Christ, Jesus takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. And we see here in Isaiah 11, this is pointing us towards the end when Jesus returns again. When sin is no more. When suffering and shame is gone. And all of those things that are injustice or unfairness or whatever we may use, the things that just bother us to our core, when those things are gone, we will experience life as it was for the first two humans. This is the promise that God gives us throughout Scripture, but specifically in Isaiah chapter 11. And this is for those who put their faith and trust in Christ, that from the stump of Jesse came a Messiah who fulfilled everything that the law said and that we couldn't do. Would you pray with me?